like to begin this evening's talk with a few moments as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama 2,500 years ago. So allow yourself to uh, settle in as though we're all sitting under the Bodhi tree. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree, and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of greed, aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha Gotama, the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and his courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by these words, What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here, where and how you are? Just who do you think you are, anyway? (coughs) The Bodhisattva, the just about to be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and penetrating sense of investigation, accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gotama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of heart and mind perfectly in place. In response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisattva, with his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to have any power over this about-to-be Buddha. And so we sit 
maybe not always exactly like the Buddha sat on that night 2,500 years ago. But we sit and we, we practice with sincerity, we practice with determination, at home alone, maybe with your sangha, your community of practitioners, and now here in retreat. As awakening beings, as we practice, the particular qualities of heart and mind that were also perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree, as we practice, these capacities of heart and mind continue to develop, to deepen and to mature within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually. It's inevitable that this happens if we keep on practicing. This evening we'll explore the quality or the factor uh, that is one of the most fundamental underlying factors of our practice, mindfulness. And as we explore together this evening, allow the words to be a, a touch point or a pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourself which I found is facilitated by what we could call listening from the heart rather than listening from the head. So in support of this, it's helpful to relax deeply in the body, deeply in and through the body. So just take a moment or two now to drop into your body with a bright, easy attention and relaxing from head to toe. Letting the whole body, heart and mind deeply relax into a very simple, direct presence. And with an open heart, just simply hearing. And so mindfulness. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being like a precious gem and that it's supported by seclusion, impartiality, and renunciation, the very conditions that we have here on retreat. A pervasive and deep mindfulness, along with a calm and concentrated mind, are really the key factors for the heart, the mind, to ripen into the letting go that's necessary for liberation. I often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all of the factors of mind 
necessary for awakening, necessary for liberation. In fact, the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor that gives birth to all of the other factors that are necessary for liberation. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. So maybe a kind of male-female way of speaking about it. So we could say that I put them together and decided that mindfulness is the chief mother. (laughs) And when it really begins to be established in us, it's the ingredient that offers us our greatest protection. In Pali, the word for mindfulness is sati, which is sometimes translated as memory or to remember, to remember or reconnect, to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body, heart, and mind. And I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our strong habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but rather to remain resting in the inertia of our habits. Once in a Dhamma discussion with friends, someone once asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? And I think it's really a good question, especially these days. Because mindfulness is such a common word uh, in the English language and used in a very casual way so much these days that some of its potency, some of its depth, has been dissipated. So what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? The great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is just this absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind. Which means absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness being receptive to what is without the forethought of concepts, without the forethought of past experiences or ideas of how we think it is or how we think it should be or how we think it could be. As Krishnamurti said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. 
This is, we could say, is what is sometimes called the don't-know mind. With the great intimacy of mindful presence opening us to understanding the way it really is, which may appear so simple, so clear, that we can hardly believe it. The Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not remain resting in the inertia of our old habits, but rather to meet the experience of the moment with a very fresh, connected intimacy. To come close, very close, to see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It really connects, going right into the object. And yet at the same time, it's not a sticky or fixed connection. Mindfulness or mindful attention is a clear, fluid connection that lights on an object just long enough and just deep enough to know it. This is really the flavor of attention that allows for a penetrating investigation and a clear comprehension of whatever it connects with. Mindfulness is the active aspect of awareness. And as I mentioned last night, it's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And at its best, purely receptive in its relationship to whatever is presenting itself in the present moment. And of course we pay attention to a whole range of experience including things that we do quite mechanically. Breathing, walking, moving the body, seeing, hearing, tasting, thinking. We pay attention to phenomena that's pleasant, that's maybe wonderful and easy to be with, and also experience that's unpleasant and that may be difficult to give our attention to. We open to all of it. No parts left out. The very stuff of our lives is our path to liberation. It's not the, well, I could be really mindful if only I wasn't so restless. Or I could really be mindful if I didn't feel so much anger or or sadness or if I didn't feel so much physical pain I could be really mindful or I could be really mindful if I wasn't sick I could be really mindful if I felt well or I could be mindful if I wasn't so caught up in thought or so attracted or so attached to beauty It's the very stuff of our lives that is our path to liberation. Mindfulness is about living in the action 
living in the action of the body, the heart, and the mind, living in the present moment's experience. And in a sense, we forget our self. We, in a sense, lose our self in what is. And so there's just what is without anything added or needing to be added and without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. With mindful awareness we have the possibility of not thinking that I'm doing this or I'm doing that. The moment that we think I'm doing this we're creating or recreating a sense of a separate self. Creating a separation, a disconnection from the reality of the way of things and in fact then living in an idea. The idea of I, the idea of me and mine. Instead of living directly in the action. As you engage in the three creative practices during these two weeks, movement, seeing, drawing, and writing, with mindfulness being the underlying root of your practice, the opportunity to mindfully investigate and see the presence of freedom or suffering in relationship to self-view in relationship to the erroneous view of a separate, solid, static me. There'll be many opportunities through these two weeks to begin to see the presence of freedom or the presence of suffering in relationship to self-view. It will become clearer and clearer quite naturally. And as I mentioned last evening, sometimes people describe mindfulness as a kind of magic. It kind of feels like that sometimes. Not the magician's magic, as I mentioned, that creates an illusion and pulls us into that illusion, that delusion. But the magic and the great beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of the illusion, out of the delusion, directly into reality. Without it we're bound. We're imprisoned in the assumed appearances of things. And we get caught again and again in reactivity to these clearly, these not clearly seen appearances. The result being then that we unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. So again, some words from Krishnamurti. If we don't know what mindfulness is, we're like a blind person in a world of bright color, shadows, and moving light. No matter who we are, 
where or or how we live all of us every one of us want to be at ease we want to be happy and I think that most of us want much of our life experience to be permanently in place or at least deeply fulfilling we certainly want life to suit our passing fancies or our expectations or and our deepest hopes and desires consequently most people spend most of their time and energy trying to accomplish all of this through external experiences by getting this or that or him or her doing this and that going here and there and we go for we try for sustaining satisfaction and contentment through the constantly changing world of our senses as well as through the myriad and constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our lives and some of the time we know at least intellectually that none of this really works the Buddha spoke about happiness that's beyond our ordinary experience of pleasure he said that happiness arises when we're mindful that's a radical statement I think happiness arises when we're mindful and so we take the Buddha's words to heart and look closely very closely to see feel and know our experience very directly our meditation practice cultivates mindfulness mindfulness happens we could say when we really truly bring our attention to the present moment and so we practice this over and over and over again moment by moment by moment our practice is one of intimacy really the very deepest intimacy with our own experiences which as practice develops as it expands and as it matures this becomes an intimacy a kind of profound heart connection with all beings with all things the direction of mindfulness is to be aware intimately aware of it whatever it is in the moment and see and know what is what really truly is how is it in this present moment and this present moment and this present moment this is the basic foundation in all forms of Buddhist practice how is it in experiencing the eye ear nose tongue body touch how is it in experiencing the mind how is it really 
not what you hope it is or what you want it to be or imagine it to be or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to present moment experience is what allows clarity and a really true insight or understanding to arise, to very, to arise very simply, just naturally, which it inevitably does. We don't do anything to make it happen. The truth is actually not very far away at all. It's right here, right now, ever present, immediately available, always and everywhere. And it's our greatest protection. Some years ago I was teaching a class here in Taos, mindfulness class. And um, every week we would begin at our uh, gathering to share something that had occurred uh, during the week previous to that particular class that had to do with what we were exploring in relationship to mindfulness. And one week one of the students came in and she said that morning she was watering her garden. And she had watered her garden hundreds if not thousands of times previously. But she said that morning when she was watering her garden it was as though it was for the first time. She was amazed by that. And then she said, how have we survived so long without being mindful? And she went on to say, terrible things are done when mindfulness isn't present. So she had quite a powerful insight in that moment. The Buddha Dhamma is about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. Without mindfulness, it's as though we're living our life through binoculars that are out of focus or glasses that are out of focus, the wrong prescription. Our perspective, our perception is blurred. We experience life through the filters of various ideas or preconceptions or opinions, fears, judgments, similar past experiences. Meditation practice that's grounded in mindful awareness is about bringing everything into a clear, sharp focus to see things as they truly are, as though for the first time and seeing without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, with what's been called beginner's mind. Some years ago now I had uh, the privilege of being with one of my grandsons when he was two and a half years old, when he saw for the very first time in his life a pine cone. His mother and I were taking him for a walk in Pennsylvania where they were living at the time. Walked down the hill and he picked up a pine cone. Something new for him. 
and he started to investigate it. He smelled it. He looked at it, turned it over every direction, every which way. He stuck his tongue on it, tasted it. He put it up to his ear, hearing it. Thoroughly investigating this little object that he found. And his mother and I were watching and and then we very dutifully, as a good grandmother and mother should, said, that's a pine cone, Alex. And he looked up at us kind of quizzically. And being the good boy that he was, he said, he repeated the word pine cone. But then ignored us completely and went back to his investigation. His direct experience with pine cone, with his very fresh, open beginner's mind. This is an attitude of heart, an attitude of mind that we can learn or maybe more accurately relearn to bring into our lives as a whole. And it's transformative. It's transformative and healing. These next two weeks will offer you some incredible opportunities to meet and engage in experience with this fresh, open, beginner's mind. One definition of these teachings and practices is that they're the best medicine. The best medicine to make us well in the deepest and most profound sense. Well as in freedom from the sickness of confusion, anguish, fear. Freedom from the restlessness of wanting that stems from an ongoing dissatisfaction. Well in the sense as freedom from suffering. There are four domains of mindfulness or four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now, in the present moment. And this evening we'll explore the very first, just the first of these domains, which is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such. Not one's ideas about it, not one's interpretations of it, but the body in the body, just as it is. And of course there are many uh, varied and specific aspects of the body to notice and to give a careful attention to. And of course all of us here know that one of our primary practice orientations to the body is mindfulness of breathing. I think that sometimes there can be some misunderstanding about mindfulness of breathing, the practice of mindfulness of breathing. Breath as an object of mindful attention is not just a beginner's instruction as some people think it is. It's not just a beginner's way of practicing. 
the development of the mind and the understanding that's accessible through mindfulness of breath is potentially quite profound in making the simple sensations of the in and the out breath at the nostrils in the nostrils area or the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly in making this a basic ground of mindful attention I've been deeply grateful and even awed myself at the depth and the breadth of the purification of the heart the purification of of the mind that happens with this practice as well as what comes to be seen and known understood with a simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breath so now just for a moment let your attention drop into the breath mindfully absorb into the in and out sensations at the nostrils or the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly and just drop into this these experiences without any self or with as little self as possible just very simply noticing for instance are you trying to control trying to manipulate or control the breath and it's very important to notice this without judgment to notice without self recrimination just simply notice in a moment of clear seeing there's often a sense of relief as a friend of mine says seeing is relieving and we might at times particularly notice each breath each inhalation and exhalation very directly as sensation as movement as vibration in the area of the body where we're connecting with the breath and maybe noticing it right when it begins and staying with it all the way through to the end and maybe actually noticing the ending the cessation of the breath and then the beginning of the next inhalation or we may simply notice the movement of the in and out breath or the sensations of the breath at the nostrils just the movement of the breath basically just this
which helps to cultivate an increasingly quiet and tranquil and peaceful breath. It's very simple. It helps to cultivate also an overall body-mind calm. The body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures not really our ordinary, everyday kind of casual way of noticing our bodily activity, but a closer, more intimate, ongoing and careful attention to the body in every direction, in every position. Standing, sitting, lying down, walking, and the various movements of the body and getting up and down flexing and extending the arms and the legs, turning, lifting, carrying, even bringing mindfulness of the body in the body to the experience of falling asleep and waking up in the morning or after a nap. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone, a me, an I, behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement? Beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing just simply be known as standing? Sitting is just simply sitting. Walking is just simply walking without the layer I am or the internal feeling that this is me walking, sitting, etc. Once many years ago, one of my Burmese teachers, Sada Upandita, asked me, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking, standing, sitting, or any bodily sensation. And when he asked me this question for just a brief moment, I was caught by the question, which in retrospect, uh, I think was a kind of test of my practice at the time. He liked to do that sort of thing. But very quickly, in in the practice discussion, There was a spontaneous reflection and then a response to Sada Pandita. No, no, there's no woman, no man, no anybody known. When I'm very directly connected, connected with and mindful of walking or whatever bodily phenomena is happening. So a good question to ask yourself at some point. Very helpful. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful awareness of the body in the body, we also begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experiences arise out of. So for instance, the intention to, 
followed by an action or inaction. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention or the energy of volition begins. Where it starts from and how it feels in our body. I don't in some independent, mysteriously isolated way decide to stand or to not stand or to sit or to lift an arm or take a step or speak particular words. If we think that we act solely from the place of I and me, which is a place of separateness, of isolation, we will eventually or maybe quickly experience some degree of suffering. Our actions of body and speech are always a response or a reaction in relationship to something that has occurred either currently or in the past. This is how karma is created. As we pay a more intimate, mindful attention to the subtleties in the actions of the body and the experiences of interrelatedness within the body itself, we may begin to see and to understand the role of intention, the role of volition, where it comes from, how it arises, and not take it personally, while at the same time recognizing a responsibility for our actions. As this awareness of the body in the body blossoms, there's a very natural, non-conceptual understanding of the subtler cause of suffering that begins to take hold, which can in fact open our heart to an unimaginable expanse in relationship to all beings. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena that we call our body? Some years ago, I had a student named Roy, who was a very deeply dedicated practitioner right up into his dying moment. And he uh, died of AIDS or AIDS-related complications. And during that very last phase of his life, I visited him in the hospital daily. And one day I was sitting in the hospital with him here in Taos one afternoon as he was lying in his bed. And at that point, there wasn't much left of his body. And he was lying there, and he stretched his arm up, very slowly stretched it straight up, and turning it around, all around one way and then the other way, and looking at it with great interest and great care. 
And then after a little while of doing that, he said in a very cool and yet odd way, or not, not odd, not odd, A-W-E-D, odd way, he said, wow. That's all he said, wow. The form, the posture, and the movements of the body are totally dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions just as, for instance, does the arising of anger or the sensation of coolness on the skin or the liking or the disliking of some experience or Roy's body being as thin and as, and as light as a reed. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment. Choices are made, but in truth they too are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear, unfettered, and intimate attention to the body itself, its movements, and the process of intention that we begin to directly experience this truth? The next establishment or domain of mindfulness of the body that the Buddha points us towards is giving attention to the parts, the various parts of the body. All 32 of them, (laughs) as it's taught in the classical Buddhist texts. Hair, skin, muscles, bones, and all of the various internal organs and fluids. And in your practice here, you most likely notice them as they make themselves known. Such as the intestine, or the bladder, or the heart, or the lungs, or maybe the liver, mucus, saliva, etc. The classical 32 parts of the body practice is one that isn't often taught here in the West though it can be a very powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's conceptual solidity and one's self-identification with the body, one's own body and other bodies. And I have uh, no doubt that you have noticed many parts of your body even during this one full first full day of our retreat. But how often today did you notice them in a mindful way? How identified, for instance, are you with the hair on your head? Or the lack of it? Or the hair on your body, for instance? How do you attend to the experiences of your intestine? 
and the digestive processes therein or to a moment or many moments experience of the heart how do you experience your skin this bag of flesh that holds all of the various contents of the body how often do you experience your nails or teeth saliva sweat or any part of your body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness a non-judgmental non-manipulative non-grasping non-rejecting non-self-identified kind of attention just the body in the body without all the layers of ideas about it and interpretations of it just the body as a body and some words from the Buddha regarding this abiding contemplating the body as a body internally externally he or she abides independent not clinging to anything in the world this is how a yogi abides contemplating the body as a body <coughs> so just for a moment consider how do you identify yourself for most of us if not all of us a primary part of our personal identification is related to our body we identify ourselves I think in good part through rupa the Pali word that translates as material form or materiality so considering this for a moment in relationship to yourself I'm a woman or I'm a man I'm thin or fat or not too thin or not too fat I'm tall or short or of average height I'm good-looking I'm handsome I'm beautiful I'm ugly I'm plain I'm attractive I'm unattractive I have dark skin or light skin or good skin or bad skin my nose is large or my nose is too big or small or cute I'm wrinkled <laughs> some people think that John <laughs> I'm wrinkled and old and weak or I'm young and strong and smooth-skinned and on and on and on with all of these personal identities constantly changing over the years within days or within just moments in our mind <coughs> even though we engage tremendous effort and energy and time in clinging to these various identities 
There's no place to hang our identity hat for more than a few moments, if that. No place to rest in these constantly changing relative perceptions and ideas of who we think we are. Takes a lot of energy. Keep it going that way. (laughs) Another aspect of mindfulness can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are essentially no different than any other form, no different than any other rupa. Our human form is of the same elements as any and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. Again, potentially a kind of non-ordinary way to cut through the concept of a static solidity and the I am identification. The Buddha offered quite a profound teaching in a very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching that if we sincerely and seriously take it up, it becomes a window opening us to the direct experience, discernment, and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality, the ultimate reality of rupa, form, the reality of how it really is how what this body, as well as every other form, really is. The teaching and the practice is about directly discerning the four great essentials, or the four great elements, earth, water, fire, and air, or wind, in directly experiencing these specific characteristics of each of these elements in the body. So the direct experience of the characteristics of the earth element are hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The direct experience of the body in the water element in the body is flowing and cohesion. The direct experience of discerning the fire element is heat or warmth, coldness or coolness. And the direct experience of discerning the air or the wind element is the experience of supporting, pushing, So I'd like for just a few moments uh, this evening to explore a few of these characteristics together. Just uh, begin beginning to taste this. I'll, and you do taste it. You just maybe don't know that that's what it, what it is. So begin by relaxing and bringing your attention to the breath for just a few moments, just a moment or two. And letting the mind settle and focus in a very simple way with the breath sensations as the object. 
And we'll start with pushing. Begin by being aware through the <clears throat> sense of touch of the pushing in the center of the head as you breathe in and breathe out. If the pushing of the breath in the center of the head isn't so easy for you to discern, then try being aware of pushing in the as the chest expands with the breath or as the abdomen moves with the breath. Wherever there's movement, there's pushing. When you can discern the characteristic of pushing, briefly just concentrate on it for a few moments until it becomes clearer in your mind. And then move your awareness to another part of the body nearby and look for pushing there. This can be done again and again in various parts of the body until wherever you place your awareness in the body, you can easily see and know pushing. In some places it'll be obvious and in other places it will be quite subtle, but it's present everywhere throughout the body. So this characteristic of the air or wind element pushing. And now let the perception or the discernment of pushing let it go. And we'll move now towards discerning hardness and begin by discerning the hardness in your teeth. Bite your teeth together a few times, feeling how hard they are.
Really feel how hard they are. Let it in. And now relax your bite and feel the hardness of the teeth. When you can feel this, try to discern hardness throughout the body and in a systematic way, maybe starting from the head, moving down through the body in the same way you did exploring the body, discerning pushing. And with the exploration of hardness, take care not to deliberately tense the body. now letting the discernment of hardness go. (coughs) And we'll explore the discernment of softness. And begin by gently pressing your tongue against the inside of your upper or lower lip to feel its softness. Now relax your body and practice systematically beginning to discern softness throughout the body. Now letting the discernment of softness go. And next we'll look for heat or warmth throughout the body, which is usually quite easy to see and to know. So just for a moment or two, discerning heat throughout the body.
And now let this go. And next, coldness or coolness. And it's helpful to begin feeling the coolness of the breath as it enters the nostrils. And then begin discerning coolness or a coldness throughout the body. and letting this go. All of the elemental characteristics that we've explored so far are known directly through a sense of touch. We've seen the characteristic of pushing, which is of the air or wind element. We've seen the characteristic of hardness and softness, which, of the, which is of the earth element. And we've seen the characteristics of heat and coolness, which is of the fire element. And lastly, we'll just take a look at the characteristic of Cohesion. This uh, characteristic is to some degree known by inference as well as by direct experience. This characteristic is of the water element. So cohesion. Awareness of how the body's being held together by the skin, flesh, and sinews. Some sense of this. Blood being held in by tissue and skin like water in a balloon. Without cohesion, the body would fall into many, many separate pieces and particles. The force of gravity, which keeps the body stuck to the earth, is also cohesion.
if cohesion still isn't clear experientially, then you can pay attention to just the qualities or characteristics of pushing and hardness. And eventually you may feel as if the whole body's kind of wrapped up, as if in coils of a rope. And so for now, letting go of this experiment of the elemental characteristics. How intimately, how mindfully connected are you to these most basic and (coughs) universal experiences, this body in its elemental nature? essentially no different than any other form. The last instruction from the Buddha to this, um, in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of <coughs> decay in a corpse and maybe seemingly something not something that we have much of an opportunity to do here in a retreat setting such as this. But the truth of the matter is that there are many, many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. Insects, maybe birds, (coughs) other creatures, and certainly corpses of plants and trees and flowers. All forms of life are mortal. All forms, all rupas are mortal. They have the nature to die and to decompose, or just to deconstruct and decompose. Consequently, it's possible to observe this directly. I've been in retreat in various places over the years and at times quite purposefully observed the dying process of flowers and grasses and continued over time to observe them go through all the changes that things do as and after they die. And once when I was on a retreat, in a retreat on Cape Cod, with some friends where we rented a house for a couple of months to practice together. I had the great good fortune, or maybe only good fortune uh, in the world of Dharma practice, to come upon a dead seal on the beach. And every day for a month, I walked down to that body and sat with it for a little while, observing and letting in the process of decomposition and decay which in this instance was happening very quickly because it was being helped along by the many seagulls who found the seals' decaying flesh to be delicious food. This daily practice during this month-long retreat was 
quite a heart and mind-changing experience for me on a number of levels. Ajahn Sumedho, the abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England and the most senior Western monk in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah, tells about a time that when he was living in a monastery in Thailand and he asked to be able to spend a day practicing in the city morgue. And because he was a monk, the authorities let him go in, though somewhat reluctantly. And he said that all of his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were challenged, or I think he actually said fully assaulted. He said the first thing that hit him was the smell. He said which almost drove him to run right out the door of the morgue. But he just stayed mindfully present and little by little he said it became tolerable and it became just a smell, just a scent. He spoke about his long-standing and very deeply embedded assumptions regarding this package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and heart as he took in the various stages of decay that were all around him. And he mentions that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and saw all sorts of parts, as he put it, which at first he found quite puzzling. And then he very quickly realized that the bloated body in front of him could explode at any minute. And he very much hoped that it would not happen while he was there. And then remarked that fortunately it didn't happen. He said that when he went back out on the street after this day of practice in the city morgue that he saw people in a radically new way and with a radically wide open heart. It isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. All forms, all rupas, living or non-living, are mortal. And we're so attached to forms, our own form and all sorts of other forms. And for many of us, I think our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and often unrecognized desire for an attachment to, for instance, forms that please us or forms that are beautiful to us or forms that are amusing or interesting to us, or just simply the taken-for-granted familiar forms. And I think what is actually kind of strange and amazing is that fairly often we think and we act as if we and they won't change, won't die, which if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or not so subtle tension and stress in our heart, our mind, and our body. (coughs) The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form, 
can be quite helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? Mindfulness practice trains us to drop into the body again and again. And we find that when we connect and look carefully in the body, we find sensations. Much of the drama of our thought, our feelings and our actions actually begin with sensations. Through mindfulness we train, we train ourselves to be in the body and receive them. To be present with the sensations of our body is actually not an act of will. It's an act of unconditional acceptance. Metta. Metta with equanimity or grace. This acceptance implies not fighting or resisting what's presenting itself. Not wanting things to be different. And not concealing or hiding from the moment's experience in the body. In such moments we feel and know our activity as belonging to life. Maybe we wash the dishes as an act of generosity and love. And in that sense, maybe as a holy act. We open the door, feeling and knowing what the wrist is doing. We feel our body maybe contract and turn away from cold weather. We catch ourselves. And consciously then, with awareness, rise up to meet it. The choice to be aware is often an act of courage. The essential practice is to return to whatever presents itself in our experience from moment to moment. To feel and to know the actual physical sensations of our aliveness. And in relationship to the movement practice that Zuleika is offering, as well as in walking practice and in our ordinary everyday movements, movement invites attention. It asks us to practice a kind of devotion to ourselves not in a self-centered way, but as an act of loyalty, we could say. Instead of abandoning ourselves, we learn to inhabit ourselves, to inhabit this body in a wholesome and wise way. Someone once said, the body is tremendously homesick for us and it waits patiently for our return. 
And though we may have ignored its invitations for many years, when we do say yes, it's immediately available, full of life, full of know-how. And all of a sudden we find that we need no training to be fully alive, that we only lack the determination to feel our aliveness, to feel it and know it. Mindfulness is like a treasure hunt. Within the framework of practice, we find the way. And because each of us has experienced specific conditioning, both the path and its fruits uniquely emerge from each of us. The treasures that we discover along the way are the healing, beautiful, and simple universal truths of the way of things. And this is what sets us free. And I'd like to close this evening's talk with a poem by Mary Oliver, the one she calls the Buddha's last instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two solid trees, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. And let's sit together for just a moment. <clears throat> 